three coins in the fountain each one seeking happiness thrown by three hopeful lovers which one will the fountain bless hello and welcome to the screen test of time the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for best picture i'm susan araslin i'm a blandly handsome italian prince prince of what who cares those would be stakes there are no stakes in this film um I'm so sorry. I really meant to call David Daw. Oh, let me get him on the phone. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm so beep, embarrassed. Beep, boop, beep, beep, Italian phone sounds. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey. Hey, Susan. Hey. hey. Sorry. I thought you'd be into the Italian Prince thing. I thought you would want to do like a full episode with him. So I just let him come along. But if you want me, that's fine, too. You know, I... He is blandly handsome, but not the most intellectual fellow I've ever seen. I mean, he's still on the call, but I think he would say that's fair. Yeah, I don't think he's going to mind. Yeah, that's, yeah. Okay, yeah, let's just do our usual thing and leave the blandly handsome Italian prince out of this. Cool. uh, Until he comes (laughs) up in the plot. Yeah. Anyway, this week we are diving right into the 1954 nominees with Three Coins in the Fountain, a postcard picture book of Rome and a little bit of Venice that also has a movie. I didn't, mm, I didn't, I definitely did not hate this movie, but also was like, who cares? (laughs) Yeah, this is a hangout sitcom. This is what we did for Hangout sitcoms before there was a Hangout sitcom. Yes. This is just like three hot women that all work as secretaries in Rome. They're all American expats. And like, this is their story of trying to find love, except that they succeed at the end because this is a movie and not an open-ended TV show where they date a new guy every week. Right. It even has this kind of episodic structure where act one is about one of their romances, act two is about another one, and act three is about a third one, and then at the end, and it like creates this weird holding pattern where the act one and act two romances just have to be like, oh, there's a conflict, don't, what are you doing? <laughs> so that at the end, they can all get back together in front of Trivi Fountain, and that can be the happy end of the movie. Yeah. But it's fun. Not all of it. I'm not going to be like, fuck and slam dunk i love this movie but like i ain't mad at it all the romances have their moments it is fun uh yeah <laughs> it's definitely fun i feel like i had a pretty uncomfortable response to one of the romances at one point which we will get into i will say though that if this movie had just been an hour and 45 minutes of the beginning where it's just let's look at different incredibly beautiful piazzas in rome while frank sinatra sings i would have loved that movie i do realize that that puts me in a minority on this podcast and possibly among all movie watchers ever no i'm actually with you on this like i i actually think this movie works best When there are no stakes whatsoever. Literally, the introduction of stakes 
seems to derail every plotline every time it happens. Like, the moment anything matters for a single moment, yeah. first of all, it's incredibly disorienting. You're like, oh God, what's gonna, are, is, are things going to actually happen now? <laughs> and second of all, it kind of makes you realize, I don't know, like, I thought of Friends almost instantly in this movie because basically the first thing that happens is you go to the most ridiculous fucking apartment in the world and somebody goes, oh, don't worry about it. Secretaries make a lot of money in Rome. And you go, are they kings? What are you talking about? I mean, so I will actually say that they give a decent explanation for it. I don't think that the apartment is quite... I think the apartment is like a little bit past this, but you know, at this point, the secretaries are being paid in American dollars. The dollar is very strong and Italy is still on the lira, which I mean, when I went to Italy for the first time when I was 16, before they were on the Euro, even then it was pretty cheap to be in Italy. And I love that place. I go back whenever I can. And it sucks now to have to buy shit in euros when I'm like, when I was 16, this was like a dollar. <laughs> I I do understand that, and I do think that, yes, the movie- But the apartment is a little too far. The apartment has 20-foot ceilings and a giant built-in modernist fireplace. Yeah, it's a palace. And yeah. she has a servant. Like, I- like. <laughs> I, I I understand the exchange rate is strong, but it's like she produces a fucking rocket ship to the moon on the balcony of her apartment. And then when somebody goes, what the <laughs> fuck? She goes, don't worry about it. The exchange rate is strong. Do they all live together? No, I don't. Because that's, that's the thing I couldn't figure out. Are they three women living in the same apartment? Or is it that two of them live in the same apartment? And then that one that the oldest one of them has is the palace. Okay, there's a real SAT logic puzzle aspect to this, because at one point, when the one that dates an actual Italian man, but not a prince, comes back from being incredibly angry that she, I mean, with good reason, for how her plot turns out for a while, she is in the huge apartment. Oh, yeah. Damn. So I, so I hmm. think they all live together, but the not Audrey Hepburn, our young lead... <laughs> I don't think is ever confirmed to be living with them, except why would she be brought to that place when she arrives in Rome if she isn't living there? So that's, I guess they all live together. But boy, does it not matter. <laughs> Even then, though, that apartment is like, I mean, and the view is overlooking the forum or something. Like, it's a really nice part of Rome. Anyway, not to get super fucking sidetracked on this, I would have believed like a nice apartment and I think even in the context of, like, you know, Hollywood movies, you could have had a nice apartment that was not that nice. <laughs> Especially comparing it to Gregory Peck's in Roman Holiday. He's also getting paid in dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He has a movie nice apartment, which is like, there's a lot of bad apartment signifiers, but it's like still pretty big because it just has to be. You're fucking fitting a camera in there. So it, like, can't be tiny. Oh, no, Gregory Peck's apartment in Roman Holiday was, like, one tiny room with a bed in it and a desk. But it had a pretty... I mean, like... It had a balcony. It had a realistically sized apartment to it, but it was still kind of big in terms of, like, actual square footage. It, just because, like, sets... It, it Not gigantic. Not even, like, friend's apartment style big. 
and certainly not the like 20 foot high ceiling ridiculous palace of this movie but there's actually like room between the bed and that couch like there's room for a couch in this bedroom whatever that's a good point like in a new york studio there would not have been that like it would have been the foot of the bed and the head of the bed would have hit each wall (laughs) yeah this is like quibbling and really not germane at all to this movie that has no tethers to reality (laughs) whatsoever it does actually take place in rome they are in actual rome yeah except when they're in actual venice so the three plot lines are well no two of them so i guess the only reason this makes any sense is they all live in an apartment together but also again other than that them living in an apartment together does not matter One of them works as the secretary slash unrequitedly obsessed with and in love with a, like, novelist guy that just is an American expat novelist who's not writing but sometimes is writing, but is just kind of there to be snippy and say high culture ho-ho things until Act 3 when he has a plot. The middleist (laughs) secretary is... Going back to America to get married, but then it turns out that's a lie. She just wants to go back to America because it's impossible to meet any men in Italy. But also there's this guy at work who's obsessed with her. And there's a rule at their office that the American girls are not allowed to date the local employees. Totally fine, I guess, if she wants to date an American guy at the office, but... When the shit hits the fan on that detail, so much happens so quickly that's so insane that I'm like, we need to have what the fuck is that dude's deal corner about her boss. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Okay, good. I will say that when this movie has stakes, every single time it has stakes, which is thrice, Mm -hmm. they're very problematic. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. Which does kind of take away from the picture postcardness of the rest of this movie. But luckily it doesn't happen a lot. And then the third plot line is the like young one who's new to Paris falls in love with a prince. Rome. Gaslights. Yes, sorry. New to <laughs> Rome. Fucking like might as well. In terms of plot significance. This very Emily in Paris. Like. <laughs> but yes, it is obviously Roman that like this movie has an establishing shot reminding you you are in Rome every 45 seconds. <laughs> yes. But like plot relevance could be anywhere in Europe. But she falls in love with a prince, gaslights that prince into falling in love with her, then confesses to that, and then the end of the movie is just kind of like, I don't know, she's hot? Like, I guess we're just going with it. Like, it's the end of the movie, it's fine. And also because I think that the prince is like, you know, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. No, God, he's so dumb. And he's established as such this, like, worldly ladies man who you got to be careful with him because otherwise he'll take you to venice and then you're one of the venice girls and there's no future for you here no man will touch you when you're a venice girl and then you're like how did this dipshit seduce anyone like i understand he's a prince but i feel like he would like trip over his own shoe (laughs) because he really will like he will fall for anything yeah anything And is wrong-footed by the simplest of ruses. They make him out to be this really deceptive Casanova, and uh, that blows up about five minutes into him being on screen. We were like, oh no, this guy's just a sweet himbo with a plane. (laughs) Yeah. 
But that's our Act 2 relationship. Our Act 1 relationship is Anita, our Middleist secretary who's going back to America, falling in love with the translator at her office, whose name is just Italian Italianson. <laughs> it's Giorgio. Yeah. So it kind of might as well be. Yeah. Um, Giorgio she- Bianchi. It's, it is pretty Italian Italianson. Yeah. And she gets caught. The start of their sort of courtship is them getting in this like ramshackle truck together. That has no horn and no brakes. Right. But it does have a Saints medal on the front. So they're exactly they're fine. But she is seen in the car with this guy and by the boss who does not let you date within the office, does not let you date any of the Italian men in the office. And they, like, fall in love on this weekend trip to his family, but it can never be because, A, he thinks that she's actually going back to America to get married, and B, they have this inter-office romance clause from the weirdest boss on Earth. Because he calls the youngest secretary into his office to go, like, I know they're together, and she handles that very badly and confesses that the going back to America thing is just a ruse, But then he jumps from there to the conclusion that she is pregnant and offers to help her get an abortion and also fires the dude. Yeah. It all happens that quickly. Like quickly, if if your head is spinning at what? That happens watching the movie as well. Yeah, and it also happens, of course, in the, like, Hayes Code way where you know that that's what he's talking about, but... It's not said, like, quite as explicitly. (laughs) Yeah, he offers to get her his doctor, is the way that the movie constantly puts it. But then her plotline kind of becomes, she goes to see Giorgio and confesses she doesn't actually have a fiancé. And the two of them are like, oh god, I love you so much. And then sort of the movie realizes, oh, there's an hour of the movie left. And so the next time you see her, she's like, he doesn't want to get married because he doesn't have a job. If he just had a job, our plot would be resolved. But oh, no, it's not. It's not resolved. We're not happy. (laughs) And you go, okay, well, I guess we'll solve that in Act 3. And you move on to the second plot line, which is our youngest secretary gaslighting a prince. Yeah, and I got to tell you, this is the one that made me so fucking uncomfortable because... The way that it starts is you have this montage sequence of her going around to places that she knows that he frequents and asking questions to find out what his favorite things are. What kind of opera he likes, what his favorite dish is, at his favorite restaurant, what his favorite wine is. Well, actually, that happens after the oldest secretary sends her to meet him at an art gallery and gives her three catchphrases to use in discussing the art. And the prince seems very captivated by her sensitivity toward art. And then this sends her on this insane fucking journey to gaslighting the guy. Can I, though, there is one detail that I found incredibly disturbing. Which is, it does in fact happen in that order where the older secretary is like, let me give you a crash course in talking about, like, art. And then she goes around and, like, quizzes people on his likes and dislikes so that she can memorize all of them. But you and see then her says with this to him, little... oh my god, okay. yes, go you ahead. You <laughs> see her with this notebook where she has written all of these details down. And first of all, the notebook is scary enough. 
But second of all, when you actually see the notebook, it's all written down in chronological order of when she learns it in the film, including the detail that he plays the piccolo, which you learn before the oldest secretary teaches her the art history thing, which implies she had this file on him begun before the oldest secretary gave her this idea. Oh man, I did not even notice that. That even makes the thing that made me super uncomfortable even more squicky. So they start dating and everywhere that they go, she's like, oh, let me order the veal salt and bulka. Let me get this particular wine. And he's like, oh my gosh, those are my favorite things or whatever. And then instead of being like, oh, what a coincidence, isn't that charming? To put him on the back foot and get him to not, I guess, figure out that she's full of shit and has been kind of stalking him. She says to him repeatedly, you really have to stop pretending to like all the same things that I do. You don't have to do that. And that was the point where I was like, this chick is fucking evil this is straight up fucking gaslighting it is absolutely that point where you're like oh because i think even hearing the broad strokes of this plot line you would think it would be fun to watch a like hot 20 something girl just kind of gaslight a prince like that sounds fun there are worse crimes in the world than that like that's kind of funny And that, like, you could kind of laugh it off in some ways. But she goes about it so systematically and with such a premeditated preciseness that it is not fun. This could go either way. Are they going to end up together or is she going to become a serial killer? Right! Because it's one of the two. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, the thing that really got me was when she turned it around on him and accused him of bullshitting her. Honestly, how many times have people pretended to like something that someone they had a crush on liked that they didn't really like? That's normal. Going around systematically finding out what every single favorite thing your crush has is a little bit weird, not gonna lie, but also sounds kind of like a 90s teen romantic comedy. Yeah. But when you get to the point where she is accusing him of the very thing that she is doing, I was like, okay, no, this is just fucking abuse. Like... This is not cute. The other thing that is so weird about this plotline is that the prince is so dumb that like everyone else who sees this happening is like, she cannot mention a second detail behind the thing that she has written down in her notebook. Right. Oh, she also lies about her like origin. She says she's three fourths Italian. Yes. It is such an unnecessary lie, but also such a huge one. This ends up with her doing a lie where she lies and says that her father died young because his father died young. Yes. Which is psychotic. Yeah. It is like it is straight up 90s psychological thriller activity that is framed as kind of a cute mistake. Yeah. And I do think you could maybe write a version of, I mean, certainly this plot line, but even these details, I think you could write into a plot line where you were like, oh God, I got in too deep. Oh man, I kind of thought I was like defending myself against this ladies man, but it turns out that I'm actually acting like a psychopath and this is a really nice dude and I fucked everything up. Oh God, oh God. But she 
only kind of seems to feel a little bit bad about it. Like, she feels guilty in the scene where she confesses, Mm. but then is immediately more like, eh, well, I fucked this up. Time to go try something else back in America. And not like, boy, I really was a bad person. (laughs) That was a terrible thing for me to do. It definitely feels like, well, I won't do that again. But I'm not going to explore any deeper than that. Like, oh, that didn't work. (laughs) Yeah, it is one step above, oh, that didn't work. In terms of the, like, level of moral reflection she engages in. Yeah. Anyway, then that's on hold so that for two minutes, the prince can be reminded she's hot. And then they can end up at the end of the movie. As we get to our third plot line with the oldest secretary who is in love with her boss... And decides to go to America just so that she doesn't become a spinster cat lady. And it's really that sudden. She's given a cat and is like, I have to go back to America. Oh, such a cute kitten, though. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. It's like, it's so tiny. Oh, maybe like the size of a, of like a hedgehog. Yeah. Anyway, really cute kitten. Also reminds you why you see more dogs in movies than cats, because that cat is like, I do not want to cooperate with this in any way. (laughs) Yeah. I, (laughs) yes, it totally is, which works for the scene. Yes. But yes. Anyway, she is like, I'm going to go back to America. And then her boss is like, well, would it change anything if we got Loveless married? Like, if we just got into a marriage of companionship so that you didn't have to become an old spinster. We seem very compatible. I mean, you've worked with me and stared at me for 15 years. So, like, you could probably do that for the rest of your life, right? And she's like, I am so desperately in love with you. Yes, let us immediately get married. And then he has Act 3 terminal illness that's very hazily defined, but might be okay if he goes to America. Yes. Which I kept waiting for it to be like, okay, brain cancer? No? Okay. No? Okay, we're just not ever going to talk about it. Got it. Brain cancer seems like the answer in that it's headaches, but like, yeah, it is never, ever defined. In that it's headaches and that the doctor is like, yeah, I mean, a year max. Yeah. And <laughs> Unless you go to America where they might be able to treat you more. And I'm like, it's 1954. I don't know what they can do for brain cancer in America either, but, you know. Right. Sure, okay. <laughs> like, the movie seems to act like that's going to completely solve the problem somehow. Yes. But it just needs a happy ending. So he decides, also kind of crazily, though, that here's the thing where the wild variability of how effective that America treatment is going to be is a huge problem. Because if it's like, this is really going to extend your life and it's got a decent chance of saving your life, then the fact that he's like, I just want to die in Italy, ship my body back home is insane. However, if he really does have a terminal illness that will almost certainly kill him and this American treatment is a total like moonshot, maybe it'll work, who fucking knows, thing, then this movie does not have a happy ending. And so it has to make that switch where it goes from eh, I don't really think I want to bother. I don't want to drag this out. If I'm dying, I'm dying. To Don't worry, it'll all be fine. We're going to America. Yep. They have a sort of funny sequence where the secretary gets 
drunk and does okay drunk acting, but has like very good drunk scripting and drunk plotting. I just sort of enjoy that whole sequence and the way that she kind of drunkenly confesses to all the plot lines that leads to the novelist guy kind of resolving everything for people is kind of a fun way for this to all end. It is really good drunk writing. You're right. Because she goes on these weird tangents. It's definitely how drunk people talk. She's kind of drunk overacting, I will say. It's not the worst drunk acting I've ever seen in my life or anything, but it is just sort of like, okay, we're going like goofy farce drunk and not like how any human has ever been drunk ever. <laughs> it's, that's fine. Given the context of this film, it did not feel that out of place. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So she like goes and like I say is doing the, like, drunk, about-to-fall-asleep confessional thing. Like, here's all of my friends, and I love them all so much, and here's all their problems. One of them has a boyfriend. He should have a job again. You can fix that, just saying. Other one was gonna marry a prince. That prince is mad at her. Does he have a reason? Fuck that. It's Act 3. And then, like... (laughs) That's, yeah, it's fair. Goes and... (laughs) Um... Then the the novelist goes and reverse psychologies the prince into being into the hot girl again in about 30 seconds. And then they all meet up at Trevi Fountain and end of film. They all live happily ever after, especially the novelist who will never die. (laughs) Uh, Or he lives happily ever, ever after just because, you know, there's not a whole lot of time anyway for him to have not a happily ever after. Yeah. That's that movie. We did forget the detour to Venice with the prince like the the details of it which are actually kind of funny so when the older secretary tells the younger secretary that she absolutely can't go to venice when he calls she suddenly switches her opinion and says you know what say that you can go but just say you have to be back tonight and then the next scene you see that they're going together that the older secretary is coming with her to venice which the prince does a whole lot of like, oh, yeah, well, my plane is really small. <laughs> and then the young secretary says, oh, well, if she has to take the train, I can't let her do that alone. I'll just go with her. So then they all end up on the plane and they go to Venice and ride a gondola and go to a restaurant. And the prince gets up and leaves them at the table together. And the young secretary is like, no, I think I actually really do like him. And then the older secretary is just like, fine, I'll take the train home and you stay another day. Yeah. Completely abandons this whole, your reputation will be ruined if anyone finds out that you spent the night with him in Venice. I think this is giving the movie, I know this is giving the movie too much credit. (laughs) However... That plot line is also the beginnings of the prince being a complete dipshit. And I like the idea of the oldest secretary being like, yeah, it turns out he'll fall for fucking anything. So like, go ahead, sweetie. Like, there's not a problem here. I thought he was going to be too much for you to handle. But like, I got a free trip to Venice out of this guy being a dipshit. So like, let's go. (laughs) What's the worst that could happen? Uh, yeah, that is definitely giving this movie too much credit, but that would be a good thing for it to have thought about, and I'm glad that you interpreted that that way. I don't think that there's anything that conflicts with that at all, to be clear. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I don't think that the writers or director or the actors thought that much about it. (laughs) This is a thing where this is based on a novel, and the novel does not have a Wikipedia page, despite the fact that there are two other movies based upon this novel, one of which also gets nominated for Academy Awards. 
And it also was like a pilot in the 60s that didn't get picked up, which sounds like a shame because this sounds like it should be a TV series. I wonder how much of this plot line is sort of dictated by the novel. Like, what's the prince's deal in the novel, basically? Like, how much is he more of a ladies' man in the novel because he's, like, allowed to be because the Hayes Code isn't getting in the way? Right. Well, he's a ladies' man in the novel, and then we have to immediately abandon that because if he's ever slept with any other woman, he cannot get married. And so he's just kind of a good-natured himbo. That's a really good point. Apparently, also, it inspired a 2010 movie with Kristen Bell called When in Rome. Right. I didn't realize that was that Kristen Bell movie. Not a remake, but an inspiration for. Right. Legitimately, that was a thing where I did not watch that movie, but I was like, this is a wild and crazy moment in Kristen Bell's career. Like, this is happening. <laughs> because it was this weird moment, like, is she the new Katherine Heigl? Like, are we just going to kind of try and have her lock down romantic comedies every, like, 12 to 18 months for a decade and then just kind of give up after a while and then the answer was no she's going to do the good place but they kind of tried that for a minute yeah anyway this has been Kristen bell corner i'm always here for Kristen bell corner <laughs> i was thinking the other day that oh i have been following Kristen bell's career for 20 years now oh my god i feel a hundred yeah that uh, that was also my reaction <laughs> was the memory that when I went to New York in 2003, right near the dorm where I stayed at, they were doing Reefer Madness. That was the theater where Reefer Madness, which was originally a musical, was done. And that was like her big breakout role before, of course, her actual breakout role anyone knows about, which is Veronica Mars. But like that was her first real credit. And like... Oh, right. Kristen Bell has been doing shit for 20 years. I'm a thousand years old. <laughs> <laughs> ba -ba -da -ba. Kristen Bell Corner. Kristen Bell Corner. Anyway, yeah, so this movie is um is really beautiful yeah. to watch. It's in not Technicolor, but Cinemascope. Though I gotta say, Cinemascope, and I didn't notice this in the robe as much and i think that that has to do with the weird sets that they built specifically for cinemascope it has this quality where sometimes the background looks like it's green screen and has been filled in and the foreground looks like someone's standing on a green screen and then suddenly you'll see people interact with things that come from the background and realize that it's not yeah i am a little bit hazy on the exact specifics of it, but the pitch of CinemaScope was that it was 3D without the glasses. That the fact that it does all of this weird foreground, background, f-stop shit was supposed to make it feel like the image was jumping out of the screen at you, but instead it just sort of seems like the 1950s equivalent of turning motion smoothing on on your television. <laughs> Where it just creates this really distracting distinction between foreground and background that you have to kind of not think about because it makes everything look weirdly cheap. Yeah. So the thing is that in theaters, it was projected onto these specifically curved screens like the IMAX screens now are. So when they went back to it, uh, adapt them for television or for regular film screens what they did was they apparently just shot the negatives which makes sense like I, I don't know how else you would do it onto regular film 
I would love to see what it actually looks like on a cinemascope screen. Like, do you still get this quality? Or is it that the reason that the foreground seems superimposed onto a green screened in background is because the foreground is like actually popping out at you? Yeah, I wonder. Because the other thing that's sort of distracting about it that I now realize is totally because of what you are now talking about is everything is centered in frame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely everything in a cinemascope film is dead center in the fucking frame. Yeah, rule of thirds is out. (laughs) Yeah, and it has this very green screen quality to that, I think. For some reason, I guess because of the jalopy of a car in this movie, the thing I am thinking of is like the Beverly Hillbillies, like the the actual television show, The Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> yeah. That has that same quality of like, they're just all riding in front of a green screen, even though they're not. Probably for parts of that, they are. But for other parts of it, like they would kind of pull out and you'd go, oh, no, they're like actually driving. You'd see other cars come from the background that you think are green screened in and then realize they're on a road. <laughs> they are definitely driving. I just remembered the thing from that sequence that I meant to talk about, which is the most staged car accident accident in the history of cinema oh yes that is not in universe staged but is like when they stage a fake accident in like a heist movie to distract people that they let you know is fake by winking to the audience it looks less fake than this car accident (laughs) looks A bus has hit a fruit stand. There's just a bunch of like, I swear to God, I think there's just nuns standing there gesticulating at things. (laughs) Everyone is just sort of miscellaneous yelling in Italian. It looks like they're all animatronic and you're in like a Disney ride about Italian traffic accidents. Yes. (laughs) As they all do these little sets. That is absolutely what it feels like. And it's adorable, and I love it. It's like a microcosm for how the stakes of this movie work. This is a car accident. Something serious could be happening. But you're looking at it, and you're like, absolutely nothing serious could be happening here. No one is in danger. Nothing bad could possibly be occurring here in this car accident. Everyone is fine. Uh, That feels like a lot of this movie. Including the deadly disease that is going to kill someone in a year. Feels like, no, this is actually probably okay. He'll probably be fine. Yeah. It is really distracting how serious that one scene is. There's like, there's that, there's this scene where Anita, like, the the car with no brakes starts rolling away with her in it and she can't stop the car and she rolls downhill. And the music gets like super serious for exactly 10 seconds after the car crashes. Those are the two moments in the film where there are suddenly like actual real life stakes introduced, literal life or death stakes. And you are in both of them going like, is this really happening? What's happening? Is everyone going to be okay? Oh, God. What are we just suddenly going to have everyone be dead? There's a lot of whiplash there. Yeah. It's the opposite of Roman Holiday, where I really kind of spent all of Roman Holiday going like, this is so cute and light and nothing serious is going to happen. And then you get to the end and you're like, they don't hook up. Like, it's just like, it's actually real. That's that's just an experience that happened to two people. Whereas in this movie, it's like, anytime anything even vaguely real interrupts it, you're like, is everyone going to die? Because I don't, because uh, I've forgotten how stakes work. Yes, they're introduced at all. And you're like, this is such a departure from where we were that everything must be terrible now. <laughs> yeah. I, so should we rate this movie? Yeah. I don't really know how. 
I am going to go with a six. Okay. And I'm going to go with a six because a little bit that's, I feel like I talked some shit about the like sudden act three terminal illness, but I actually in general like that plot line. I quite like the secretary, the oldest secretary. I think she's very fun. Mm -hmm. I like the sort of picturesque travelogue qualities of this movie. And I like about half of the other two romances. Like, I think the other two romances have their moments. And I think that all kind of maths out to, like, this movie's a little bit more good than it is bad. You don't know why it got nominated for Best Picture. But, like, I've, I had a perfectly fine time watching it, you know. I mean, I think it got nominated for Best Picture because it was Cinemascope, Rome, and Venice. Like, it's just beautiful. And I imagine seeing it in 3D was like, holy shit. I guess that must be it. That's a little strange to me, only because, like, this film, and even Roman Holiday, to an extent, feel like, well, we've set up all of these, like, studio spaces in Rome to film these gigantic Roman epics. So just, can you fucking set this in Rome? Let's just do more productions in Rome now that we have the production facilities. Like, does anybody have a script that could theoretically work in Rome? And so this feels so tossed off in that way versus, like, The Robe. Even though I hated that movie, it did feel like a movie that was like, you will nominate this based on Cinemascope. Even though I know Cinemascope was the other interchangeably named. No, that was The Robe. I got The Robe confused with the other interchangeably named Roman movie. Quovatus? Yes. But it is weird to go like, this is sort of a visual feast for the eyes. It is. I mean, but if you just want to like look at Rome and how it's pretty... We've been doing that for a while, guys. Not in color and not in 3D. Yeah, I guess. I guess that really is it. And that's. And there are worse reasons. We've seen movies nominated for much worse reasons than that. There's a lot of crane shots in it. I mean, like, it, it is a really good feeling of like, oh, wow, look at the great expanse of Rome. Like, is the cinematography amazing? No, but it's impressive in the sense of like you get these huge overhead shots of one of the most impressive cities on the planet. <laughs> two, actually, two of the most impressive cities on the planet. <laughs> and I do think you can very easily see that the cinematography in this movie is better than it is in Roman Holiday because they reuse not just the same locations, but literally put cameras down in the exact same fucking spot at several locations that they do in Roman Holiday. Well, yeah, but where else are you going to put it? Uh, there's a couple of, like, I I think there are a couple of places you could probably shoot Ruby Fountain. And there's that weird thing where they, like, pick literally the same corner. There's this point where when they're about to go down an alley into the bad part of Rome, it's literally the exact same corner that Audrey Hepburn, like, gets in the moped accident on in Roman Holiday. <laughs> and the camera's, like, in the same spot. I do think they just sort of picked those shooting locations and there were good places to put the camera that they'd already picked out. So, like, just do that. But there were also some locations where you were like, Trivia Fountain actually doesn't look very good with, from a weird overhead shot, like, that they use in Roman Holiday. It kind of makes it look shorter and less grand than it does in this movie, where you sort of film it from, like... They do shoot it from the same side, but I think that has more to do with what is next to the Trevi Fountain, because if you shoot it from the opposite side, it doesn't look as good. 
It is that there is this shot kind of across the intersection toward the fountain that is like literally the camera's in the same spot. And I do think it's just like that's the best angle to shoot it from. Just shoot it from there. Uh, but it is wild that it's the exact same shot. Yeah. Um, the end. And and like I'm actually saying that as a compliment to this movie that like it is not often that you get to see side by side literally the exact same shot in two movies and go that movie did it better <laughs> it looks better in this movie but again it's not the kind of cinematography that usually we talk about as being quite good because it's 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 postcards you know it's not like oh wow look at this really cool thing that they did with this angle or like oh they are conveying whatever with this it's. How do we show as much of a beautiful place and make it look as beautiful as possible? So that's what I'm just sort of clarifying when I say like, yeah, it's good cinematography, but it doesn't add anything artistically to the film. Yeah. It doesn't like set a mood or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think six is fair. I mean, I was tempted to go with the bonkers five, but no, I think it's a little bit better than that. Yeah. The Bonkers 5 is for when I genuinely don't know if I liked a movie or not. And I like this movie just fine. I guess I could sort of most efficiently say it by getting to should you watch this movie and go, no, fucking watch Roman Holiday. Why would you ever fucking watch this movie? Roman Holiday's right there. Like, I like it's... <laughs> Even with the fact that Rome doesn't look nearly as beautiful in Roman Holiday as it does in this, you have... Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn, so if what you're looking for is beauty, you're solid. <laughs> yeah. You are taken care of. <laughs> I will give it up to the cinematographer. I'll give it up to the writers. This was a perfectly pleasant watch. I've watched much worse, more offensive, more tiring romantic comedies than this. But I've also watched fucking Roman Holiday, and you should too. That movie fucking slaps. Yeah. Like <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I will say, like, the gaslighting thing did make me super uncomfortable. I appreciate that she comes clean about it. But, yeah, wow, it was not amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I would say, no, don't watch this movie. Or if you do, just, like, with the caveat that uh, you are going to see somebody abuse someone for a little while. And that kind of is uncomfortable and bad. I mean, not that, like, abuse doesn't have its place as a conflict in stories there will be plenty of that to come and we've had plenty of it it's just it's treated as if it is cute and quirky and it's not yeah i think that's actually the big problem is that because the movie never reckons with it it ends up feeling even worse than it is yes it's not great and then the movie is just like huh, you know the silly things that people do for love and it's like no, this was like premeditated and extremely weird and off-putting. You could come up with some reason why she is still an okay person despite it, but like you'd have to do some work and this movie doesn't do any work. It just goes, ah, it's act three. It's fine. And that sucks. Yeah, the whole like, don't you love her anyway? And it's like, he doesn't even fucking know her because she's been pretending to be someone else. Yeah. How does that all work out? I thought there was going to be a moment where he like saw the genuine her because the stuff in Venice, the two of them are not really compatible, but because she's so standoffish, she never lets him see the real her. And then she goes into this weird gaslighting thing because she likes how much he likes her when she first sort of tries to feign interest in the things that he likes, that she keeps going and kind of gets in too deep. And then act three is him seeing her being who she naturally is through some sort of like 
plot machination of the three plot lines interweaving and then goes, oh, I actually like her. Like, I, I like her for her. Let's give dating another try. But this time I would like to actually date you. And instead it's like, yeah, but she hot though. So let's all just get married. Three happy couples. End of film. Right. Yeah. I'm not buying it. And I'm not buying the movie thinking that it is okay because she is like a petite, cute girl that this is cute to do. And that basically is what it feels like. Oh, well, it's not that bad because she's little and pretty. Yet another way this movie really suffers in comparison to Roman Holiday. Yes. No, we literally had Audrey Hepburn trying to do some like kind of cute, kind of shady shit. Like she couldn't get away with this. You didn't earn what she earned. She's Audrey Hepburn. Yes. Uh, yeah yeah this is not at the level of charm that audrey hepburn can give us so yeah and i wouldn't let her get away with it so next week we are watching the kane mutiny starring humphrey bogart which is pretty cool yeah and i did say when we watched our first film that was basically this exact same story that i found this story really engaging and was irritated by the fact that the movie wasted it. So maybe this movie won't waste it. Wait, did we see... What was the movie that had this? Isn't Mutiny on the Bounty the same mutiny? Or do I... No, no, no. This takes place in World War Two. Oh, then no. Then... Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm just down for a mutiny, is what I'm saying. Like, both... Both textually and metatextually, I'm just down for a yeah, mutiny. Yeah, uh, totally fair. So tune in next week to see how David enjoys this particular mutiny. <laughs> and until then... This would have been a really good pilot. Like, keep some of this stuff open-ended. Let him go date other guys. And then, like, they all stay in Rome, but are they all going to stay together? The novelist probably shouldn't have terminal cancer if you're going to go that way, but, like, we'll fucking figure it out, you know? It was an okay movie. Watch Roman Holiday instead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. For just such breathtaking scenes of beauty, CinemaScope was created as it takes you for the first time into fabled, fabulous Italy. Nothing but CinemaScope could capture such tremendous breadth and scope. You see more because there is more on the film to see. All the splendor of St. Peter's, Baroque palaces, the Borghese gardens, the Grand Canals of Venice, the glories of Rome. And in this eye-filling setting, the worldly, wicked, wonderful story of three American girls who tossed three coins into the fountain, as the Romans do, and fell head over heels in love, as women do.